It's good to see all of you. Good afternoon. Uh, if you could open with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. It's right before 2 Samuel, if you want to find it in your Bible. Uh, I want to welcome you to Zoe Community Church. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or visiting, we want to welcome you. Uh, we're glad you could be here. We encourage you to stick around a little bit and fellowship after service. Um, just some news real quick. Um, the church that is buying this building or bought this building just closed this week. So it actually happened. So the Presbyterian Church is gone and Rockbridge is here. Um, so there are going to be some changes in the next few weeks. I don't know exactly what, um, but so far um, they're not meeting yet in the building. Uh, so we're going to kind of have this um, very minimalistic uh, kind of service for a while um, with some of the scrap stuff that we still got. Um, but praise God, we're able to still have service, so that's really a blessing. Um, just letting you know, and if you're new and you're wondering where the cross is, they took that too, um, but a new one's coming, I think. Not totally sure. Um, but anyway, First Samuel, First Samuel, at least we have the word. Uh, and it's good to be able to say, open your Bible to First Samuel. Um, I've been wanting to preach through this series for a while. Nothing against doing Christmas messages or anything like that. I'm into that too. Um, but we've been looking forward to this series. We're going to be in First and Second Samuel for a couple years or so. Um, so hopefully that gets you excited and doesn't make you want to quit our church. We're calling this uh, first half of the series after God's own heart. So we're, even though Samuel was just one book in the original Hebrew, it was split up when it was translated into Greek onto two scrolls. Um, we're going to kind of go the Greek way. Okay, so we're going to do 1 Samuel first, take a break, and then we'll do 2 Samuel. So the first Samuel series we're calling After God's Own Heart. After God's Own Heart. Because in 1 Samuel especially, we focus on what God truly values in people. We see him, uh, we see God choose a king or, or really just allow the people of Israel to have the king that they want first, Saul, and he is tall and he is good looking and he's a good warrior and he's tall. They keep mentioning that he's the tallest guy in Israel and he fails miserably and then God puts in the guy that he has wanted all along. He puts in David and David, he has some flaws too, we'll get there. But David is said in the word of God itself to be a man after God's own heart. And what we see in 1 Samuel is that God is a God who doesn't look on the outward appearance, but he looks at what's inside right here. So 1 Samuel, we're actually going to look at the entire first chapter today. So that's a little crazy for Zoe. We've never done such a thing. Um, so we'll see how it goes. Let me read 1 Samuel 1 all the way to verse 28. 1 to 28. Follow along with me in your Bible. I'm reading from the ESV. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. 
And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore... I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, we know, as we have prayed many times before, that you have made us for yourself. That you have made each and every single person who has ever lived and whoever will live for your glory. And God, we also know that though you have made us for yourself, and even because you have made us for yourself, that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And God, right now, as we, as we listen to uh, this sermon, I guess, to your word, God, I pray that you would help us to really not look over it, God, help us to see what's really going on, that you, by your grace, have inspired Holy Scripture, that these are your words that we are reading, that you actually speak to us. 
I pray, God, that this prayer would not just be words that are spoken out into the air, but that we would remember that your presence is here with us, that this time is a blessing and a grace. You've given us this time where you have spoken to us and we can speak to you. So, God, I pray that you would use this time in your word powerfully in our church, in our lives, in every single heart here. God, I pray that you would show us who you are because we desperately need to see that. And I pray, God, that we would leave here changed as only you can do. God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would work inside of us. I pray, God, that you would glorify your Son. And I pray, God, that you would be with us. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. It was a special service, I remember. After the sermon, the worship leaders, the worship team, I guess, they were instructed to play a few more songs uh, because we were going to have this extended time of singing, and then after that, we were going to have some prayer. Okay, So what we had was uh, uh, the staff kind of spread out in the back of the sanctuary and some of the the leaders of the church, and we were just going to sing. And if anyone wanted prayer then they could get up during the singing and they could kind of go off to talk to someone, a pastor, and they could share what was on their heart. And I was on the staff at Lighthouse at this time. So I was standing on the side. And of course, you know, I was pretty low on the pecking order. Not a lot of people wanted to receive prayer from me. They're like, can I get a real pastor, please? Um, But I was there and I was waiting. And at first, just a couple people went up and they went to some of the older pastors uh, and then a couple of more, uh, a couple more. And then as time went on, pretty soon, like everyone was getting up. I was pretty surprised. Like all these people were getting up to receive prayer. So that meant that some people had to come to me, right? They had to get in line. Um, they didn't want to wait. And this guy came up to me a few years younger than me. Uh, and I knew him to a certain extent. Um, we had gone to church together. We were part of the same community of believers. Um, but honestly, I didn't know him that well. Okay, we weren't that tight. So I had no idea what was going on in his life. I didn't know what he was going to share, if he was going to keep it kind of shallow because it was me. <clears throat> I said, how can I pray for you, man? Exactly how I talk now. And he replied by saying something that I'll never forget. He said, I, um, he kind of, it was kind of hard for me. He was like, I, uh, I'm just, I'm just so lonely. And then he broke down and, and started weeping right there. And I wasn't trained to handle a guy weeping and to pray for him. I did the best that I could, but honestly, I wasn't expecting it. I thought he would say, pray that I'll have some wisdom to get a new job or, or pray that I'll just have a guy. I thought it was going to be generic. I didn't expect people to share stuff like this. And the reason is, when you look around church, everyone, for the most part, seems like they have it all together, right? I, I used to believe most of the people who seemed fine were fine. But it didn't take long for me to learn that though most people can hold it together pretty well, most of the time, most people have a world of sin or struggle or suffering or strife buried beneath the surface. It didn't take long for me to realize that everybody carries a burden or burdens, plural. 
What are your burdens? As we begin this series in 1 Samuel, what are your burdens? What are the things that you carry? What are the things that you hide from most people? See, the thing about 1 Samuel is that even though it's the story of God's kingdom and and there's battle and there's war and there's all these things going on, it begins with a burden. This book begins with a simple burden and it's crazy because uh, there's kings and there's prophets and world-changing reality and the living God of eternity moves powerfully to change the course of human history. And yet it begins with one woman who has a problem. A burden. And she's like us in a lot of ways. She's not royalty. She's not a prophet or a prophetess. She's just a person living in this fallen world. And yet as we look at 1 Samuel chapter 1, we see in her story the curtain being pulled back and we see that the God of heaven is actually always at work, maybe even especially at work in stories like this. In fact, God is always working. When he seems absent, when he seems distant, when it seems like he's doing nothing and we're just waiting, actually God is working all the time. The God of heaven, his hand is upon the affairs of the earth. And in Hannah's burden, as we read, we see someone like us with a nature like ours. We see something about how to deal with our burdens in a fallen world. But even more importantly, what we see through her burdens is a glimpse of who God really is. And this is so important for our study in 1 Samuel because what is our study called? It's called After God's Own Heart. We want to be people after God's own heart. God is looking for people who have a heart after his. But the question is, if we want to be that person, what is God's heart like? And that's how the book starts. So three points today from the text. It'll be a little different than what we've done, but I think it'll be a good change of pace Three points from the text. First, the burden, obviously, which shows us that God is willing to not give us what we want. Let me say that again. The burden in this text shows us that God is willing to not give us what we want. That's not exactly the most popular uh, point. Um, So uh, if you want to give offering now, no, just kidding. Right away, we are introduced to a man named Elkanah. Okay, let's get that right. Let's dig into the text. He's from the hill country of Ephraim. Now, if you know your Bibles, if you know the book of Judges, which we looked at a little bit last week, a lot of bad stuff in the Bible happened right around this area of the hill country of Ephraim. So what do we know from Elkanah right away? He's from a not-so-good neighborhood. He is the son of Jehoam, who is the son of Elihu, who is the son of Tohu, who is the son of Zuth. And guess what? We have no idea who those people are at all. But the fact that his ancestry is listed up to his great-great-grandfather, it's significant. Just that idea. Because you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't list people's relatives this far back unless there was someone famous in his family somewhere up the line, or his family was well-known for something. So most scholars think that he was either aristocracy, that they were from a rich, well-known family. Maybe he had an ancestor that had done something that was uh, of renown. Whatever it was, Elkanah's family was a big deal. And they were clearly wealthy, for not only could he support two wives, and uh, we'll talk about that in a minute, 
But later on in the passage, we see they were able to offer a bull for sacrifice. You remember our Christmas series, we talked about how Mary and Joseph couldn't afford a bull. A bull was the most expensive animal to sacrifice. So these guys are doing pretty well for themselves. And if you look at verse 3, it says, Now this man, Elkanah, used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. So even though, you know, we don't know what to make of him in the first two verses, he's wealthy, he has a good family, but he's from a bad area. But verse 3 tells us that Elkanah is different than everyone else around him. How do we know? Because he leads his family to Shiloh every year to worship and sacrifice. Now, what is Shiloh? What's at Shiloh? Why not just go to Jerusalem where the temple is? Well, the thing is, at this point, there is no temple at Jerusalem. It hasn't been built yet. Jerusalem isn't even the capital of Israel at this point. All of that happens later. See, right now... Shiloh is the worship center of Israel. It's where they set up the tabernacle. Do you guys remember that? It was like the portable tent version of the temple that they built back in Moses' day in the wilderness. They had set it up in Shiloh. This is where the high priest was. This is where you went if you wanted to worship God. Shiloh was where the Ark of the Covenant is. You guys remember Indiana Jones? I mean, it's better than nothing. Shiloh is where you go to meet with God. So get this picture in your mind. See the image being painted for us in a spiritual landscape that was darkened by uh, the shadow of idolatry and unfaithfulness and everything that was going on in the book of Judges where everyone was doing what they wanted to do. We see a little bit of light. We see this guy Elkanah, who is a man trying to be faithful in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation If you read Judges, you think these kind of guys are extinct, but here one is in the flesh. There is always a remnant of people who are seeking God. So obviously, obviously Elkanah is the hero of this story. That's why we're introduced to him. Actually not. Elkanah is almost not important to this story at all. In fact, the only reason he's introduced at all is because his wife is important to the story and we need context. And this in of itself is also significant. Because this is a pattern in the book of Samuel and in 2 Samuel. We get introduced to these people. We're told about them. We kind of get to know them a little bit. And they're only important, we find out, because of who they lead to or who they point to. We see this with Elkanah. We see this with Hannah. We see this with Samuel. We even see this with David. David the king, who's the main character, he actually is only important in the, ultimately because he points to someone else, but we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. So here's the deal. Okay, Elkanah is generally presented as a good guy, but he's in a bit of a mess. His wives, plural, don't get along. A good guy who has a problem. Now, before we move on, uh, we got to talk about polygamy. Okay, we need to talk about it a little bit. I know you guys are like, Jesse, do we need to talk about it? Is it a need? Come on. Okay, it's not a need. Okay, maybe I exaggerated. We don't need to, but I I want to. And the reason why is not because I'm into it or anything. Don't ever quote me on how I need to talk about polygamy or anything like that. I'm not into it. I'm against it personally. That's my conviction. But it's important to understand this story, to understand it. I remember 
um, even growing up, I remember reading the Old Testament and I was like, what's up with this? What's up with polygamy? How come all of these people have multiple wives? I even asked it at this Christian conference. They said, ask any question, we'll answer it. And I said, okay, I'm going to ask what's up with polygamy. That's literally what I said. And I said, what's up with polygamy? And they was like, we don't even need to answer that question. <laughs> Next. And so I never found out. No, I'm just kidding. I did find out. And I'm going to tell you, polygamy is in the Old Testament. If you read it, you can't avoid it. Abraham, he, he marries different people. And then it, maybe it's a little bit like, oh, I don't know what's going on with this. But then you get to Jacob and he marries Leah and Rachel right away. The guy who is Israel has two wives. So what's going on? David has multiple wives later. Here's the thing, okay? And stick with me, okay? Don't, this is not the final word, this thing I'm going to say next. The Mosaic law never prohibits polygamy, ever, okay? I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying it doesn't, okay? It doesn't. In fact, there are a couple verses, namely Exodus 21.10 and Deuteronomy 21.15-16 that would seem to imply that it was an acceptable practice under the Mosaic law. However, polygamy is never portrayed in the Bible as the norm. You're never told to do it. And it's also never portrayed in a positive light. And from the beginning, we see that marriage is presented as a union between two people, one man and one woman, not one man and two women or three women or whatever. So while the Bible might tell us might not tell us, excuse me, that polygamy is wrong. It definitely shows us that it's not the ideal. In fact, I would argue that it shows us that it's bad because it always leads to misery. And that's what we see right here. We see it right here in this story. I think this is exhibit A or at least B after Rachel and Leah of how polygamy messes people up and messes families up. So, Why does Elkanah, if he generally is a good guy, according to the text, have two wives? Why does he do this? What's up with this guy? Well, the answer is right in front of us. It's because Hannah can't have kids. This is kind of the linchpin of the whole story. Hannah can't have kids. In the Hebrew, it's more clear that Hannah was his first wife. So what most likely happened is they got married Hannah and Elkanah fell in love. I mean, it might have been arranged or something back then, but they loved each other. It's clear in the text. Elkanah probably had no intentions of ever being a polygamist. He didn't grow up wanting to have multiple wives. He just wanted Hannah. But as the years went on, they had no kids. It wasn't for a lack of trying or wanting, but one year to the next, to the next, to the next, no baby. And eventually, he felt, probably, that he had to do something about it. Okay, children, apart from being uh, viewed as a blessing, okay, in that society and by Scripture, as a grace from God, children were a necessity, okay, in this society, in this culture. You needed kids. You needed kids to work in the family business, to take it over. You needed kids to take care of you when you got old. I think we still need that. I'm hoping Peyton will take care of me, maybe Reezy. But you kind of need, you rely on them. And also when you die, okay, just to kind of put it bluntly out there, you passed on your property, your inheritance to your kids. If it didn't go to your kids, then your family would lose it. And remember, Elkanah has a big deal family. So here's the thing. He felt this pressure. You can see it in the text. There was this pressure upon him 
to have kids. And because there was pressure upon Elkanah, guess what? There was a lot of pressure upon Hannah. Now, Elkanah seems like a good guy. I'm sure he wasn't all angry saying, give me kids, right? You got to give me some kids. But it was there. It was the elephant in the room, in the household. They just needed one kid. And yet every month, disappointment. Every month. There's probably doubt in Hannah's life at this point. There's probably some strife and conflict There's probably a level at which they couldn't go anymore in terms of depth in their marriage because you just can't talk about some of these things after a while. Every month. So Elkanah, finally, in desperation, he marries Penina. And guess what? Right away, it seems like overnight maybe, she gets pregnant and she gives him some kids, plural. In fact, if you look at verse 4, Penina has sons, plural, and daughters, plural. So she has at least two sons and two daughters, maybe more. She is very, very fertile. She's completely the opposite. Everything has changed. And so the household now is filled with the sound of babies cooing and children growing up and Elkanah laughing with joy that he has sons and daughters. And now he's a little bit busy to hang out with Hannah because he's got to spend some time with the kids. He's training them up in the family business. I mean, you can imagine how hard this is for Hannah. Right? It's just right there. The situation is so difficult and every year it intensifies as they go to Shiloh, it says. And it's funny how that happens, right? Some of us have had the worst fights in our marriage on the way to church. It's something about like that spiritual aspect of like wanting to give your best that brings out the worst in us. I don't know why. But when Elkanah took his family to Shiloh, they would sacrifice. And this is where the conflict would just blow up. Because, okay, here's the thing. Okay, you got to understand how the sacrifice worked. Back in the day, you couldn't just eat meat whenever you wanted. I mean, I guess you could, but you'd have to kill your own animal, and that was very expensive. It was very costly to you. Elkanah was rich, but he's not like that rich. So what you do is, when you go to offer your sacrifice to God, and this is built into the law, right? The the priest slaughters the bull or whatever it is and roasts it on the fire, actually, and you actually get to eat some of it. You get to eat in this special meal, So there's a sense in which there's worship, but there's a lot that goes into it. So for families that took their sacrifice to the temple or the tabernacle or wherever, this was like a a special occasion in multiple ways. Okay, they would go, they would offer up this animal, and they would get to eat this special meal as a family together. And, you know, as the years went on, there's more and more mouths to feed. So they split it up. And Elkanah is giving, you know, Penina her portion and all of her kids, making sure that they get to try out this beef, which they never get to eat, right, once a year. Um, And then Hannah has to see it. Hannah has to watch him, like, giving them this food, cutting it up for them in little pieces, whatever. And Elkanah, being the good guy that he is, is like, okay, this is messed up. i got to give Hannah something. So he gives her a double portion, He gives her twice as much beef, which is nice. I mean, it's not a child. But this is where the conflict goes in. I mean, how do you think Penina felt about this? It says in verse 6 that she would provoke Hannah grievously around this time. Because from her perspective, you got to understand, if you just think about this as a human story with real people, which it is, every year, even though Penina is the one who bore children, Elkanah shows that he likes Hannah more, at least in her eyes. He gives her the double portion. He's talking to her. He's trying to comfort her. It's a mess. 
It is a mess. You can see how everyone feels bad in this love triangle. So Penina, I used to think she was just a punk, right? Like she's just mean. Penina is not in a great situation either. But she takes it out in a bad way. It says she provoked her. She would rub it in her face. She was probably like, oh, man, you know, like traveling so hard with kids. Like you wouldn't know, right? Like you're, you're lucky. You're blessed. You can just walk. But I got to like carry these kids with me. I got to feed them. Oh, man, you don't even want kids. She provoked her grievously. And again, I used to think it was because she was a punk, just a villain in the story. But when you step back and remember that these were real people, you could see that this is just messed up. Polygamy is messed up. For the record, that is my conviction. Don't do it. Verse 7. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat and why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Okay, he's trying hard here. Uh, I think you could, you could, husbands, you could ask your wives, or you could even try it out. Try out this, this kind of comfort next time something's going on. Am I not more to you than ten whatever? The car broke down. Am I not more to you than ten cars? Like, obviously, well, just try it. Just let me know how it goes. I mean, these questions, the answer is obvious, right? Why are you crying? Why do you weep? Why are you not hungry? Uh, it's because I don't have kids. Am I not more to you than 10 sons? Thank you. Okay, I appreciate you, but no, you're not. Okay, that's why I'm sad. Okay, that's why I'm crying. Come on, dude. So what do we have here? There's a man trying his best to be faithful and to make do with the cards he's been dealt. Two wives who make life miserable for each other. And Hannah in particular, and the story zooms in on her, who feels the weight of being a barren woman year after year after year, day by day. And you know, the truth is, they never would have gotten to this point if God had just given Hannah a kid. Now you might be thinking, that's kind of borderline, Jesse, to say. Are you going to blame God? I'm not blaming God for any wrongdoing. But I am bringing out what the text says. Look at verse 5 again. But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though who had closed her womb? The Lord. Verse 6. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. God is the one who closed her womb. God is the one who kept her from having kids. It wasn't bad luck. It wasn't the devil. It was God. It wasn't that God wanted her to have kids, but he also didn't want to interfere with human affairs. It wasn't that God was weak. It wasn't that God forgot somehow and he needed to be reminded. It's that God closed her womb. This was God's plan. That's what 1 Samuel 1 is teaching us, that God's plan, God's, uh, God's intention can sometimes be a situation just like this, a mess from our point of view. And here's the first truth we see in the entire book of Samuel. You ready? The truth is God is willing to not give us what we want. God is willing to not give us what we think we need. God is willing to not give us something that might make our earthly situation a lot easier all of a sudden. God is willing to let our happiness be put on hold 
God is willing to let us go through some stuff. So think about the burdens that you bear. And I'll think about the burdens that I bear. The burdens that we bear, it's all part of the plan. That's what the Bible says. It's part of the plan. And this leads to the second point, because I'm sure you have some thoughts about this. Let's see where the word takes us. The burden, second, the blessing. The blessing, which, spoiler alert, is not what it seems, at least not exactly. I was eating with my family the other day, and my daughter Peyton asked me a question. She said, hey, uh, she calls me all these different things. She calls me dad sometimes, dada, daddy, sometimes Jesse, because she's... She views me as not worthy of respect, I guess. But she was like, why do you always eat your vegetables and salad first in your meal? And I was like, good question. Um, let, me, let me parent you. And the reason why is because I don't really like vegetables and salad, to be honest. Okay, so I wait until I'm hungriest at the beginning of the meal And I use my hunger, my body's desperation for nourishment to help me get through the vegetables and the salad. And recently I saw her doing it too. So praise God, it worked. The thing is, and the point is, desperation can be useful for all sorts of things. It can help us reach heights we'd never usually reach. It can help us eat our vegetables and be healthy. Desperation pushes us. But the other side of this is that desperation is also dangerous. It can push us in the opposite direction. I mean, you see this in the Bible, even in parallel situations. Think about Sarah. Do you remember Sarah and Abraham? God promised that they would have a kid. He promised it to them. He promised them all of these different things that were predicated upon that child. But 10 years go by, and they don't have a kid, and Sarah's getting desperate, and she says, how about you have a child with my servant Hagar? And it leads to all of this misery and conflict and strife. She thought that she could force God's plan forward, and it doesn't work like that. Desperation can drive us to do foolish, even sinful things. So if you're reading this story for the first time in 1 Samuel, what do you think Hannah's going to do? I mean, she's kind of stuck in a bad position. She's being tormented by this second wife. She, she has no kids. What is she going to do in her desperation? Verse 9. After they, after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh. So this is one time they're at Shiloh. Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat besides the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. What does she do in her desperation? She goes to the Lord. She gives it all to him. And you know, there's a belief that before Jesus, I've heard this before, that before Jesus, there was no prayer like this. Right? People were legalistic and ritualistic and really wrote in their prayers. It was all formal. No one really opened up their hearts to God. But that's not true if you read the Old Testament. It's the people that know God the best that come to him in their desperation. It's the people that know God best who pour out their souls to God when they have nothing else. Desperation drove people like Hannah, not to despair or rage or foolishness or sin, but to God's presence. And they say that the burdens of life can either make you bitter or make you better. I don't know if you've heard that before. But in the real world, and we see this here, it's never that clear cut. 
It's not that she wasn't upset or sad or moved. She wept bitterly, but she brings it to God. And Christian here, with your burdens, whatever it might be, a relational thing, a personal thing, a sin struggle, something that happened in the past, something you're worried about in the future, something that's going on right now, something that kept you up late last night, whatever your burden is, understand that God never requires us to be dishonest in bringing ourselves before him. Sometimes we feel like we have to kind of clean ourselves up and not bring that before the Lord. Should you examine yourself? Yes. Should you be respectful when you approach God? Yes. Amen, of course. But God never calls us to be fake. If you're struggling, it's not like God doesn't know it. We read the scripture reading. He already knows what we need before we ask it. You can't pretend to be fine if you're not. You can't trick God. He knows your heart. He knows you. Hannah pours out her heart to God. And the question is, when was the last time you poured out your heart to God? Because if we're going to bring our hearts before the text, if 1 Samuel is going to do something inside of us, which I pray and hope it will, then it has to start with us bringing our hearts to the Lord. I mean, you could talk to him. You could pray to him about your burdens, about how torn up you are that one of your kids isn't walking with God, or about how the physical pain you're experiencing is just so bad sometimes, or how this one relationship, it could be a coworker, is just a thorn in your side. You can bring that before God. Cast your cares upon him, for he cares for you. First Peter 5, 7, that's in the Bible. Hannah does this, verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Notice a few things. Okay, she approaches God with expectation. She calls him Lord, and it's in all caps. You can see it there, Yahweh, the covenant name of God revealed to his people and only his people. She approaches him within the context of his relationship with Israel. She doesn't pray as a stranger. She's not like, if you're real God, if you exist, if you can hear me, she knows that he can and she knows that he's listening. So there's a certain level of expectation that God would be for her, that God cares about what she's going through. And yet, there's also deep respect She calls him Lord of hosts. And, you know, I understand where people are coming from. Okay, there's a certain way to kind of preach this kind of passage where you say, just tell God what it is, right? He can take it. The Bible says, ask and seek and knock. And it's in a certain tense where it's repetitive. Have you heard this before? I think I even said it when we preached through Matthew. It's keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. God wants us to keep bringing our requests before him. Tell him what you want. And that's true enough. The Bible does speak of such things. But it also tells us that God is God. Okay, we're not coming before him as like we're the boss and he's the worker, that we're the Lord and he's the servant. Now get on it. He's not a genie where we are the master because we rub the magic lamp. It's not like that. It's not a right to approach him. It's a privilege. He is Yahweh of hosts. It refers to his almighty power. He is the commander of the armies of heaven, the Lord of heaven and earth. So notice, Hannah repeatedly calls herself your servant. 
See, while she approaches the Lord with expectation, with freedom even, and we should have that, especially if you're a Christian, to come before God as your father, but she doesn't come before him as if she is calling the shots in any way. She knows who is God here and who is not. So with this attitude of expectation and respect, she presents her request in prayer. Please give me a son. But then she prays something interesting if you look at the text again. She makes a vow. And she says, if you give me a son, I will dedicate him as a Nazarite. Now, the word Nazarite doesn't appear here in the text, so I want to give you some of the context here. But that's what she's talking about when she says, no razor touching his head. It was a certain vow that you can read about in number six, where you give yourself especially to the Lord for a time of service. In number six, it's voluntary. Okay, it's for a certain amount of time. And you say, I'm not going to drink anything. I'm not going to go near any dead bodies. Even if, you know, my own relative dies, I'm, I'm going to stay away from that. And I'm not going to cut the hair on my head. I'm going to give myself to you. And you kind of have this wild look because of it for a time. Now, she says she's going to give him, uh, she's going to give him not, he's going to give himself, but she's going to give him to be a Nazarite for his entire life if she gets a son. Now, who is the one person And you might think of two people, actually. But who is the one person we've seen thus far in the story of the Bible who was a Nazarite for life, who had long hair? Samson, another Sam. Samson. Samson was supposed to be dedicated to God his whole life. Was he? Uh, Kind of. We'll, We'll preach judges someday. But she's saying that if you give me a son, he will be another Samson. And we will see that he will actually be the better Samson the greater Samson, the final judge of Israel, who is stronger than Samson in every way, not physically, but from the heart, because he loves God. Anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves again. But she's praying for a son. She vows, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. Meanwhile, verse 12, Eli is just chilling on the side. He's just watching her pray, and she's pouring out her heart. She's greatly moved, and he just assumes she's a crazy drunk lady. Honestly, I think this says more about Eli than it does about Hannah. Or maybe you could say it says more about the state of Israel. That to see someone praying passionately is so rare that you actually think that this lady is drunk because that would be more common, a better assumption. So he says, stop drinking, verse 15. But Hannah says, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Okay, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. Now, we'll get there in a little bit, but Eli is not a good high priest. In fact, he is really bad. He's the worst. You know, there's some wordplay here. He says, don't regard me. She says, don't regard me as a worthless woman. His sons are introduced in just a few verses as worthless guys. Okay, this guy is not a good high priest, but he's still the high priest. And when he says, go in peace, that speaks to her. She is encouraged by that. She is assured because the high priest of God says, God has heard you. Now, she didn't need Eli's validation, but this helped her to think through what actually happened. She prayed, God heard her, and guess what? That is the blessing. Because verse 18, she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then notice this. Then the woman went her, went her way and she ate and her face was no longer sad. 
Okay, think about this. What just happened here? Hannah prayed. The priest said, go in peace. Hope God gives you what you prayed for, whatever it was. And then the woman, so burdened that she couldn't eat, so broken that she could hardly stand to live in her life anymore, goes her way and now she can eat. The next morning she worships and she isn't sad anymore. Huh. What actually happened in this exchange? Because I didn't see any angel appear to say, Hannah, your prayer has been heard. I didn't see the skies open up and say, okay, I was just testing you. Now you have a baby. She wasn't pregnant yet. She didn't have a son in her possession. Why does she have this peace that transcends understanding? See, the blessing Hannah received, it's right here in the text. It wasn't the boy. And you got to understand this. The boy was a blessing. Samuel is a blessing. Don't get me wrong. But the blessing, the first blessing she gets, the thing that changes her life, wasn't having Samuel. The thing that changed her life, the blessing that changed her life, was that God heard her. The Apostle Paul, in one of his most personal letters, 2 Corinthians, I'd encourage you to read it sometime soon. Um, because it's a hard book to preach, okay? It's a, it's a book that I think is good to just read in one sitting on your own. We could preach it someday. But in 2 Corinthians, and you know this passage, he spoke of this thorn in his flesh. You know what I'm talking about? We don't know what it is. We don't know if it was a person or like a physical problem or something. But we do know that it tormented him. And Paul, you know, being the author of half the New Testament, the man chosen by Jesus Christ himself to be the apostle to the nations, he prayed. The guy who said, present your request to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. He prayed. He said, God, can you take away this thorn? And what did God say? Do you remember? He said, no. And he prayed a second time. God said, no. He prayed a third time and God said, no, because my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. See, God's blessing to Paul was a deeper understanding of his grace. God didn't give him the thorn so that he could take it away. He gave him the thorn so that he could give him more of himself, so that Paul could receive something more of God's power, so that Paul could know God in a way that he couldn't have known him without the thorn. So could it be that God has always worked this way? Could it be that God wanted to get Hannah to this moment, that all the years of misery, that all the years of suffering and struggle were stepping stones to this place of peace. And that this, that this is the way he wanted to bring Samuel, the final judge, the great prophet, into the world. I think if you read the text, it's 100% yes. It's 100% yes. It's not just about someone praying for a kid and getting him and moving on. It's about what God is doing in the heart of this woman. And this leads to the third point. We've got the burden, the blessing. Lastly, quickly now, the boy. The boy. Now, she does get a son. Okay, we read the story. You probably know the story. You know about Samuel. But the boy. We learn that God is willing to not give us what we want in order to get us to a place where we recognize what we need. We learn that it's not the gift God gives, that it's the giver, but we got to see it. 
So this little family worships together the next morning. You see this in the text. Penina is probably still making jabs, probably still provoking Hannah as she always does. But Hannah this time somehow doesn't even hear it. Elkanah probably, probably sees that something has changed. And they go home. And in due time, verse 20, Hannah conceives after all these years. She receives the son that she asked for. She names him Samuel because she asked for him. And he is so important to the Bible storyline that the books that tell us of the dawn of God's kingdom in Israel, that the books that teach us about David himself are named not after David, but after Hannah's son, Hannah's boy, Samuel, the boy that she asked for in desperation. Verse 21. The man Elkanah, this year it's different. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. So here's the thing. Okay, it's his vow too. Okay, it's his son also. And, you know, he's been wanting the son, his whole marriage too. And then Hannah's like, about the son, I, I promised that I would give him to the Lord all his life. Elkanah, he's a good, he's a good guy. Remember, he's going to pay the vow. But Hannah did not go up yet, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. So they're going to take him, but they're like, he's not ready yet. Let's prepare him, and then we're going to give him, because this is forever. Now, you might be wondering, okay, she's still talking about this, right? Because if you know uh, how human beings work, right, we all make promises, or most of us, we make promises in the heat of the moment that later on we're like, why did I even promise that? Hopefully everyone forgets what I said. Or even if I break that promise, hopefully they'll forgive me because they know that it was foolish. Right? I know a lot of people who told their high school crush, right, I love you and I will never leave you. We'll be together forever. And you haven't talked to them in like 15 years, 20 years, 50 years. Or maybe you fell into pornography, something more serious. And you vowed to God, you said, I will never do that again. And then what happened? the next week. Maybe you're just the kind of person who likes to say stuff like, for sure, you can count on me. I will be there. But then if something else comes up, you're like, I mean, everyone will understand, right? It's just something I said. As someone once said, vows are made to be broken. So it's pretty crazy that she still wants to do this. I mean, you'd understand, right, if Hannah wanted to walk back on her vow just a little bit. I mean, this boy, and we've established this, this boy changes everything for her. It's everything that she wanted. Her whole life was misery, and now it's all joy just because of him, the fact that he exists. Surely he can serve the Lord at home, right? I mean, isn't family supposed to be like a priority? Shouldn't he serve the Lord by serving us? Or maybe we can wait until he's legally an adult before he goes off to the Lord's service. I mean, what am I doing? Why am I making a vow for him? He's got to do it himself. Hannah weans Samuel. And right when he's old enough to not need mother's milk anymore, while he's still young. I mean, this kid is like four years old, three years old. Verse 24, Hannah makes good on her vow. She makes the journey to Shiloh with Elkanah, with Penina and her kids, and this time, it's exactly how she had always pictured it in her mind, holding her son's hand, helping him partake in his first special sacrificial meal, teaching him about what it all means and why they do this. But this first time for her is also the last time. She brings Samuel to Eli, the high priest, verse 26. And she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman 
who was standing here in your presence all those years ago, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And she gives him to Eli. Now, if you're really serious about parenting your kids, you would give them up to me right now to raise them. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that, actually. Please don't uh, practice polygamy or give your kids to me. But I want you to think about this. Can you imagine, just imagine, can you imagine being in Hannah's shoes, having one kid and giving him up? Most of us don't even want to think about the possibility. Our children are so important. Maybe the most important thing in our lives. I mean, I think that that's actually the reality. I think a lot of us know in church that our marriages should be more important and that God should be the most important. But practically speaking, our kids, they run everything. Right? They are the center. It's their preferences and needs that determine what we eat and what we do with our free time and how we spend our money. It's their well-being that keeps us up at night. Our greatest nightmare is that something would happen to our kids. And I want to say this gently because I understand how it is uh, being a father myself, but I also want to say this clearly because it needs to be said. Children can become idols. Children can become idols. In fact, I think children can become the most dangerous idols because they are such a blessing from the Lord. It's not just bad things that can become idols. It's not just little statues. It can be the gifts of God themselves. And they can functionally take the place of God in our hearts. They can become what we look to for peace and for joy, for security, for a reason to get up in the morning. They can become our lives. They really can. And I say this, and I think we need to We need to talk about this because there's been a push recently in certain evangelical circles, the ones that we run in, to take family more seriously. And I say yes and amen to that, that we need to take responsibility for our kids. We don't outsource them to be parented by the world or media or whoever. Vodi Bauckham and others to take spiritual responsibility for your sins more seriously. I think that that's good. It's a necessary correction. You are called to parent your kids we have to be aware of this spiritual danger to make our kids more important than I dare say they ought to be in our lives. Truth be told, I see it more and more in the church. More and more, I think, what Hannah does here, you can't understand it in the modern American evangelical church. How could you give up your kid to the Lord? It doesn't make sense. It seems foolish. The danger is we make our kids the center of our existence and to justify that it's a good thing because family is a good thing. Good things can make the scariest idols. And the danger, too, is to think that we can control the fate of our kids, that somehow God has given them to us and he's out of the picture now. It's all on us and we need to make sure they turn out all right. We got to use the right methods, keep the wrong influences away. We got to keep them close to us at all times. Again, You should be wise about these things. You should parent, but remember who we're doing it for. Children are a blessing. But just as a reminder, God didn't entrust us with our kids for our sake. He entrusted us with our kids for his.
for his. Your children were given to you for the glory of God. And we need to hold them with an open hand before the Lord. We are called to entrust our kids back to him because the truth is he's always been sovereign. He always will be sovereign. And we need to recognize that. Verse 28, the very end. And he, Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. That's it. That's why he was born. I mean, obviously he has some tasks to do. He's going to go find Saul and he's going to find David. He's going to do a lot. Samuel is an underrated character in the Bible. He is so important. But ultimately, everything that he was meant to do is here in verse 28. He was born to worship the Lord. That's why God closed Hannah's womb and then opened it when he did to give her a son. When he did, God wanted to get Hannah to a place where she wanted something more than she wanted her son, where she could give him up for something greater and better. And God did get her there through many tears. God got her right here. And let me make it plain. The only reason Hannah could give up her son like this is if she knew deep down in her heart that she had found something more important. And she had found it when she prayed that day. She had found the grace of God, and more importantly, the God of grace. She had found that he hears, that he is not far, that he is working, that he knows what's best, that he is for her. And when she found peace that surpasses understanding in his presence, she found she didn't need Samuel to be happy, and this is how God got her ready for Samuel to be born. See, Samuel was only given after she didn't need him anymore. And so she could offer him up to the Lord with joy that he could accomplish the great works God had prepared for him to do. See, here's the thing, and we're going to close in a second. God uses our burdens to bring us where he wants us to go. God blesses us not by giving us what we want, but by giving us what we need, namely himself. And when we learn that, like Hannah did, we'll be able to do what seems honestly impossible. We'll be able to live for him. We'll close here. Robert Coleman, he wrote a few books. You might have read them. He once told the story of a young boy named Johnny who was asked to make a sacrifice. His sister was sick, and she needed a blood transfusion, and he was the best possible match being her sibling. Uh, So the doctor sat him down and said, Johnny... Um, Your sister is sick, as you know, and we need to do a blood transfusion. And they said, okay, we take the blood out of you, and then we put the blood into her, and it'll make her feel better, hopefully. But they said, Johnny, we really need you to do this because her sickness is that serious. She might die. So can you do this? Can you do this? Can you be brave and donate your blood? And Johnny's just a little kid, and he looks like he's about to cry, but he says, okay, okay, I can do it. A little while later, in the same hospital room, side by side, they stuck a needle into Johnny's arm, and they could see the blood, you know, move through the plastic tube and everything. And Johnny's sitting there, and he's pale. And he lays his head back, and he says to the doctor, he says, Doctor, how long until I die? See, here's the thing. They they thought that he understood how blood transfusion works. I mean, they were like, okay, the needle is scary. Okay, don't worry, Johnny. He thought that they were going to take all of his blood out and give it to the sister. He thought he was going to die. And that's why he was so hesitant. He didn't understand that you just take a little bit of blood out. And that's what makes the story, even though it's cute, so powerful. Because this kid was willing 
to lay down his life. And here's the thing. You know, we ask ourselves, how could Hannah give up Samuel so easily? I'm sure it wasn't easy. Just think about how bitterly she wept for a child. But she gave up her only beloved son because she understood that he had been given to her by grace. And see, this is the thing. God always gives first. In fact, God never asked us to do what he himself is not willing to do. And if you're a Christian here, we know this even better than Hannah knew it back then. If anyone knows what it's like to give up your only beloved son, it's God. He knows the cost. It wouldn't just be a little bit of blood shed. His son was going to shed it all. His son was going to give up his life on the cross. Jesus gave himself knowingly for sinners like you and me. This is God's love for us. And if our God is like this, if his heart is like this, if he would not spare his own son but freely gave him up for us all, then how can we doubt? Do you see? How can we doubt that he will not graciously give us everything that we need? God is willing to not give us what we want so that he can give us something better, himself. His power made perfect, his grace. And I love how God works. Do you know what Hannah's name means in Hebrew? It means grace. So Christian, I know that there are burdens you carry. Maybe God will take them away. Maybe he won't. But know that God is working in your burdens to bless you. Maybe not with what you want. Maybe not with what you think you need, but with what you actually need. Can you see that God is using your burdens to draw you closer, step by step, to himself? And will you lay down your burdens at his feet? First Samuel challenges us. Will we give ourselves to him, heart and soul? Friend, will you cast your cares upon him? Because we know from this text that he does care for you. Let's pray. Let's pray together. If you would bow your heads, I want to give you a minute just to pray to the Lord yourself. Whatever burdens you have, and I'm sure you have at least one, I would just encourage you to bring it before the Lord. God, we know that you are good. We know that nothing, nothing can separate us. Those of us who are in Christ Jesus, nothing can separate us from your love. God, we know that the burdens that you allow into our lives are also part of that. They are part of your love for us. So help us to learn what we need to. God, I pray 
that you would help us as you bring us to a place where we recognize that all we really need is you. And I pray, God, for my brothers and sisters here. God, I know it's a painful process sometimes. So, God, I do pray for your relief. I pray, God, that you would be kind to us as you lead us deeper. And, God, I pray as you do a work in our hearts, that you would help us to not lose focus on what's most important, not our hearts, but your heart what you want, who you are. And pray that our eyes would be turned heavenward. God, you are good. We're thankful for that. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.